We know that it's important to keep certain things in remembrance. It might be something as simple as doctor's appointments or something of that nature or some other important meeting that you need to uh, make sure and uh, attend. Uh, lots of people put notes on the refrigerator, you know. Maybe you've got some magnets and you write a note and stick it on the refrigerator door because the thought is, of course, you're going to get in the refrigerator, right? And you'll see that note and it will remind you of what you need to be doing. I've heard of other people who will put a note and tape it to the mirror in the bathroom. Well, again, you're going to be looking at the mirror in the bathroom and so there's that reminder. Got to be reminded of these important events. Uh, we understand that. You know, on a, on a larger scale, we often do things to be reminded as a culture, as a society of people. All over this country, even right here in Murray County, you'll find a lot of memorials that are erected to different people and different things that have happened in these places and times. And the idea of it is by building this memorial, we will remember. It's, it's to remember. It's to help us recall important people and events. Well, the most important memorial of all is the one that the Lord Jesus instituted, as, as was read by James in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for the purpose of us remembering Him. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, the Apostle Paul recounted that information about how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. We want to talk about that this morning. And in a real simple lesson, we just want to talk about what are some of the things that we ought to be remembering when we observe this Lord's Supper. He said, do it in remembrance of me, therefore it is very important. In fact, in that same text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul warned that you might take of this unworthily. And by that, he, he specifically meant you might do it without consciously remembering what it's all about. And so we need to remember, because if we're not remembering, if we're not carefully remembering what Jesus did on the cross uh, for us so that we could have the opportunity of salvation, if we're not carefully remembering that, then we could be eating and drinking damnation to our souls, the Apostle Paul warned. So it's very important to be remembering and remembering properly. Our lesson this morning is simply going to be that. What are some of the things that we need to remember as we're about to take the Lord's Supper. I told Roger, Roger's going to be uh, leading us at the Lord's table in a, a few minutes. I said, Roger, I'm going to try to make your work easy this morning because our whole lesson is just going to be about what should we be remembering when we take the Lord's Supper. Before we get further into that, let's stop here for just a minute to thank you for being with us this morning. Our crowd is back up some today, although there's still several who are away sick. Last week, we were just completely... Uh, devastated uh, in our families and our members with uh, the flu and strep throat and other sorts of things. We're not completely well yet, but we're a lot better, and we're glad to see some of you able to be back. Uh, uh, it's always good to be together. We appreciate the blessing of the time that we can spend joined together in worship of God, and that's, that's really a blessing. Thanks for being here. Thanks to those of you who are visiting with us. Come back whenever you can. Let's talk about remembering Jesus, specifically remembering Jesus as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, the first thing, of course, that we uh, do in the Lord's Supper is partake of the bread. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, Jesus said, this is my body. In taking of the bread, we remember the body of Jesus. Well, let me suggest some of the things that we should remember about the body of Jesus. 
basically Jesus sacrificed his body. He gave up his life. He laid down his life for us. And there's some important things I like to remember in regards to that. Try to remember as we're taking the bread that Jesus knew this was coming. I think that's so important for us to realize. This did not take him by surprise. He was not shocked by it. It, it, it didn't creep up on him, uh, and he was unaware of what was about to transpire. In Matthew chapter 26, and you might want to keep your text open there, we'll be referring to it a lot. In Matthew chapter 26, at verse 36, Jesus cometh with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus knew what was coming. He was fully aware of it. You know, he could have been able to foresee that just as a man. I mean, it, it wouldn't have taken too much to sort of see how this was all developing. The leadership of the Jews was against him. And they had been plotting how they could kill him. He was aware of that. He knew anybody could have known that. Because he, he was opposing them, and, and they were envious of him, jealous of their position and, the pow- and power. So just, to, just from natural observance, you might have been easily able to anticipate what was coming. But Jesus, of course, had divine insights. Jesus could see the future uh, as the Son of God, and he knew perfectly what was coming. I I think we've got to remember that. We've got to remember that Jesus went into this fully aware of what was about to happen. It it didn't surprise him. He wasn't taken uh, by surprise. He knew what was coming. He was fully submissive to the Father. Notice we just read there in verse 39, he he said, O Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as thou wilt. He was submissive to the Father, even when it meant that he had to die this horrific death that was about to come upon him. He was willing to do the will of the Father. Sometimes you hear people say, well, it was easy for Jesus to come and die on the cross. It's what he came for, after all. Uh, You know, he, he knew it was coming. He came for that reason. And it was a lot easier for him to die that death than it would have been for one of us to have to die that death. And I think that's just absolutely wrong. I think that reasoning is totally wrong. As you read that text, as you read about the sorrow and and anticipation of Jesus, uh, the death that was coming, uh, it was fully an act of submission to the Father. He was was determined to do the will of the Father. He said, it's not my will, I want to do your will, he said. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He was obedient to the will of the Father. I think it's so important to remember that Jesus made no effort to resist being arrested. You know how this text goes in Matthew chapter 26. uh, As they come for him in verse 47, Matthew 26 verse 47. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then, they, then came they and laid hands on, him, on Jesus and took him. 
And behold, one of them which was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? I want you to think about Jesus here, how he could have avoided this uh, arrest and what was about to follow. First of all, he could have done it by any number of natural means. He could have just run away and hidden himself. He could have done that. As we said, he knew what was coming, and if he wanted to avoid it, just go someplace where they can't find you. Just run away and hide. He could have resisted. He could have personally fought against those who came to seize him. He did not. He could have called upon his followers to fight for him. But in fact, when one tried to do that, he rebuked him for taking a sword. Uh, he could have used lots of natural... He could, I think, uh, this would be speculative on my part, I think that if, in this time frame that if Jesus had wanted to, he could, have, he could have brought forth an army of people willing to fight in his cause. He could have led a revolutionary army if it was his inclination to do so. And all of that he could have done if he was just simply a mere man. But Jesus wasn't only a man, he was the Son of God, and he had miraculous powers at his disposal. He displayed his miraculous uh, ability concerning that one whose ear was struck off. Another text tells us Jesus restored that ear miraculously. He, still, he was still in possession of his miraculous powers. He didn't use them to resist arrest. And he even said here in the text in Matthew 26 that he could call down 12 legions of angels to fight for him if he wanted to. And so not only did he have natural means at his disposal to avoid arrest, he had all kinds of miraculous possibilities. Well, if Jesus wanted this to not happen, he could have caused it to not happen. It was within his power to keep this horrible chain of events from transpiring and he did not do it. I think it's significant to note that Jesus was deserted by all of his friends. You know, we most, we most pay attention to Peter, how Peter so vocally denied knowing Jesus. But Peter wasn't the only one who deserted him. Here in Matthew chapter 26, at verse 56, it says, All the disciples forsook him and fled. And so it wasn't only Peter, but all of his disciples, it says, forsook him and fled. Jesus truly stood alone at this moment. I think it's interesting, and the Apostle John speaks of this in John chapter 1, that what we have here in this case is the Creator being abused by His creation. Look in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was with God in the beginning. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus... Here it describes his role in the creation of things. Skip down to verse 11. And he came into his own, and his own received him not. They were his own by virtue of the fact that he had created all things. But his own creation rejected him. And that is amazing. You know, you would think that if you were the creator, and the ones that you had created were doing this against you, you'd surely react violently. You are my creation. You can't do that. Jesus never offered that kind of argument. But here he was, the creator, being abused by his own creation. He was innocent. 
but he wouldn't even make a verbal defense uh, of the charges that were falsely being placed against him. Look in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew 27, beginning verse 12, when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. You know, talk about not resisting. He didn't even try to argue verbally that he was innocent. He, did, he didn't even make any, he didn't offer any words to, to defend his innocence against the, the charges, the lies that were being placed against him. He didn't even make a verbal defense. But you know, the prophecy of Jesus had been that he would be that way, like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opening not his mouth. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't even offer words in his defense. Notice that his death was absolutely voluntary. The reason this happened was because Jesus allowed it to happen. In John chapter 10, John 10 verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. Notice Jesus said, you can't take my life from it, but I can voluntarily surrender it. And that's what he did. This was all happening because Jesus was allowing it to happen. And there was just so, an infinite number of ways that he could have stopped it if he wanted to. He could have stopped it from even starting. Any, any, at, at any point along the process, he could have said, no, we're not doing this anymore. It's enough. We're stopping this right now. And he had the power to do that. He said, you can't take my life from it but I can lay it down. Jesus is our greatest friend. You remember the statement that Jesus made in John 15 at verse 13? In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, what did he do? He laid down his life for us. Greater, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for us, right? So as we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, as we're preparing to take the bread, think about it. He knew what was coming, but he was determined to submit to the Father. He didn't make any effort to stop it from happening. He was a man alone, deserted by all his friends, his own creation, who were, who were abusing him. He was innocent. He wouldn't even defend himself with words. He voluntarily laid down his life. He didn't have to, but he chose to. He is our best friend. We're going to take the bread here in a moment. And let's remember those things. As, that's just some of the things. You may think of other things to add to that list, but at least these are important things to remember. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Well, then, of course, when we take the Lord's Supper after partaking of the bread, we partake of the fruit of the vine. And in Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus said it was representative of his blood. This fruit of the vine is his blood. Well, what would we remember about the blood of Jesus? Well, I, th I think it would be valuable for us to just remember uh, all of the parts of, this, of these events in which Jesus shed blood or lost blood. I think it starts out with the bloody sweat in Luke chapter 22. I know there's some controversy about this, but... There are medical experts who tell us that there is a, a phenomenon known as hemodistrosis, where under 
real severe stress, uh, the tiny capillaries of blood that are within the sweat glands can rupture and actually sweat becomes mingled with the blood. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, I think it's interesting that Luke, the physician, records, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I've always wondered if, if, if it wasn't that bloody sweat there, why doesn't Luke say his sweat was as great drops of rain falling down to the ground? Why would he refer to blood? I think that may be some confirmation of this hemodistrosis uh, situation. At the very least, whatever you think about that, at the very least, you'd have to agree that this certainly indicates the agony of mind that Jesus was in as he anticipated the suffering that was just immediately ready to begin. Of course, one of the most horrible things was the scourging that Jesus uh, encountered in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26. It says, Pilate released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That scourging, by all accounts, was just an absolutely horrific thing. Uh, the, the Roman soldier would beat across the back of the man with a, as, as we've heard described, a, a whip not with just a single strand, with, but with many strands a short-handled whip with many strands, and in the ends of some of those strands would be braided in lead balls and bits of metal or glass that would have the capacity to tear the flesh away. It's really, it's really uh, um, almost too much to even contemplate how horrible it was. There are historical accounts of men who actually died as a result of a Roman beating with the scourge. The fact of the matter is that the centurion in charge probably would have allowed the beating to continue until he, he feared that any continuance of the scourging would cause the man to die right then and there. Tremendous loss of blood. I won't go into too much graphic detail, but I think you can imagine. I did hear one thing interesting uh, several years ago. Some of you will remember when the movie The Passion of the Christ was out in the movie theaters. I didn't see that, purposefully didn't see it. But I read an interesting thing about the actor who portrayed Jesus. And at this point of the scourging, they had a shield on his back, a flesh-colored shield, uh, as they reenacted the scourging so that he wouldn't obviously be harmed as that scourge was brought down up against his, across his back in, that, in the portrayal of that movie. But the, the information of the story I read was that one of the blows actually missed that shield that they had on his back and struck him. One blow. They had to cancel filming for three days because he was injured so badly from just one blow actually striking his back. Does that tell you something about what Jesus endured in the scourging? Massive loss of blood. Uh, almost certainly the, the, the arteries underlying the skin would have been severed. Massive loss of blood in the scourging. We read about the crown of thorns. We read about the scarlet robe. This was done more or less, I think, by the soldiers to mock Jesus. But again, additional blood loss. In Matthew 27, at verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered into him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet rope. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, 
Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. You know, after you think about the scourging, that crown of thorns in the scalp doesn't almost seems anticlimactic, I suppose. But if you were just to isolate that by itself, can you imagine just how torturous it would be to have those thorns pressed down into your scalp? And then, and then of course, they beat on him with the reed that they had mockingly given him as a scepter. He's a king, he needs a crown, he needs a scepter. Well, again, and of course, uh, we've all had the unfortunate experience of having a cut in the scalp. Lots of bleeding uh, there. More blood loss, more blood shed uh, with the crown of thorns, the scarlet robe. On the way to Calvary, I think it's important to remember, how, how concerning the things that have already happened to him, how badly was Jesus hurt at this point? How badly was he hurt? Uh, look in Matthew 27 at verse 31. Uh, no, excuse me, verse 32. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, then they proceeded to crucify him. I think you would agree with me to say that Jesus would have been a man in rare physical condition. I mean, he wasn't a bodybuilder or a weightlifter, I'm sure. But as far as his general health uh, and his physical condition, you'd have to believe that Jesus was in great shape. I mean, he, he had been raised as a son of a carpenter, probably engaged in heavy physical labor most all of his life. Uh, but we also know that he traveled uh, long distances, covered lots of geographical territory for three years as he was going around preaching the, the news of the kingdom. Uh, probably spent a lot of nights out under the stars. He, he was a rugged man. Uh, he'd, lived, he'd lived a sinless life, certainly no vices that would have impaired his health. i got to believe that Jesus would have been in great physical condition, and yet he needed help carrying that cross to Calvary. My point is, he's in bad shape already. He's been badly injured already before he ever gets to Calvary. He's in rough shape. They nailed him to the cross. In John chapter 20, we won't take time to read, but John gives testimony to the fact that they actually nailed him to the cross. Sometimes skeptics argue that they didn't nail victims to the cross. They tied them to the cross with ropes. But John specifically says that he was nailed to the cross. And it's interesting that some archaeological discoveries have found the skeletal remains of crucifixion victims in the Palestine and and the nails are still impinged within the bones of these crucifixion victims. Obviously, it's not the, the skeleton of Jesus, but the skeleton of others who have been crucified have been found with nails impinged within the skeletal bones. I, I don't know about you, but I, this part to me is just almost beyond the ability to conceive how that the agony, the pain, especially about the hands. Uh, it's been argued that the nail that you would place in a man's hand to crucify him, you wouldn't put that here in the palm of the hand because there's not enough tissue there that would just tear out. And a man would, wouldn't, you couldn't crucify him that way. 
that more likely the, you, you would put the nail here at the base of the hand, which is still considered part of the hand, but you put it here, right where the hand meets the wrist. That's where you'd put a nail if you want a man to be able to spend his weight there. You put the nail there. Well, if you put the nail there, do you know what it does? It severs that bundles of nerves that go to the hand. Some of you, I know, have had carpal tunnel surgery because that bundle of nerves is so sensitive. There's so many nerve endings in our hands, obviously, and all those nerves pass through here. And you drive a nail through there, you sever, you sever that bundle of nerves. And medical experts have said that the, the pain of that, the torture of that, is not describable. That what that would, the, the agony, the pain that that would have produced is just off, completely off the chart of anything that anybody could even imagine. They nailed Jesus' cross through his hands and his feet. They suspended him on the cross for six long hours. He was nailed on the cross at about nine o'clock in the morning. They didn't die till about three o'clock in the afternoon. Can you imagine for six hours struggling? on the cross. And we understand that the problem of a crucifixion victim was that by hanging on the cross, uh, the ability to breathe, to inhale and exhale air from the lungs becomes a real burden, almost impossible to do. The man would push up with his feet in order to relieve the pressure on his arms and hands and chest muscles so he could get a breath of air. But you can only stand that for just a little while with that, that pressure on the nail that's through your feet. And so you sag down again and hang by your arms. And it was this process for six long hours on the cross that Jesus endured. Jesus made seven statements from the cross. It's an interesting study to, to read the seven statements Jesus made from the cross. Interestingly, each statement is shorter than the one before. And... There's a lot of speculation that the reason being is that Jesus just didn't have the breath to say more than that as he lingered on the cross for those six horribly long hours that as he struggled for breath, that's about all he could do was get out a word there at the end. But it wasn't just the physical torture of hanging on that cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. It wasn't just the physical torture of being on the cross. It was the horrible shame that was associated with being executed in this fashion, Jesus dying on the cross. Shedding his blood. All What we're emphasizing here is blood loss. All the shedding of blood that Jesus did in his dying. And finally, the, the spear thrust through his side. In John 19, John gives us this information beginning verse 31. John 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought, besought Pilate, that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. You understand there why breaking their legs would hasten death? Because of the process that we were describing a moment ago. They couldn't push up anymore. They couldn't get that pressure off their arms, legs, and chest muscles. And a crucifixion victim would ultimately suffocate to death. That's why they broke the legs. So they couldn't get a breath finally and would die. Then came the soldier, so, uh, then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which were crucified with him. 
But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Of course, that was in fulfillment of prophecy. But notice, but when, uh, but one of the soldiers with a, uh, with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that bear record, he that saw it bear record and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. And so the, the final physical act against the body of Jesus was the spear thrust into his side by the Roman soldier. Medical experts who have studied this uh, suggest to us that at this point, because Jesus has already lost lots of blood in this process, massive amounts of blood, and that very likely the only place left in the body where you could find a, a, a pool of blood and body fluids that would show a marked discharge from this spear thrust would be the heart and the pericardium or sac of fluids which uh, encapsulates the heart. Very likely this Roman soldier's pier- uh, so- uh, sword pierced into the heart of Jesus. Of course, that would be what a Roman soldier was trained to do, to make a death blow on a victim. But Jesus was already dead. But the last of his precious blood spilled out on the ground there at Calvary. Just massive amounts of blood. All, In fact, I think you could say all of his blood. Jesus didn't shed some blood. He shed all of his blood as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. There's a lot of parallel to the Old Testament sacrifice of animals. We could talk about that. But just concentrate on what Jesus did. His body, he gave up his life. He laid it down voluntarily. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. He let it happen, and he shed all of his blood in order to make our salvation possible. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. And I hope just by being reminded of some of these things, it will help us take that in a way in which we fully remember what Jesus did for me. This do, he said, in remembrance of me. Before we get to the Lord's Supper, though, we'll stop. We'll end the lesson with a song of invitation. And I want us all to think about the fact that Jesus did this for us to make our salvation possible. Have you availed yourself of that sacrifice? Have you, have you taken advantage of the horrible price that Jesus paid on the cross so that you could be right with God and have the hope of salvation in eternity. If you're not yet a Christian, we'll hope you'll make that decision. Hearing and believing. Will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins? Jesus did this for you. Will you accept what he did? It's up to you now. Will you accept what Jesus did on the cross for you? If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, the Hebrew writer talks about crucifying afresh the Son of God if we turn away after having pronounced our allegiance to Him. You don't want to be in that situation. If you're a child of God but you're not faithful, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.